and welcome to the BS Alert Podcast. This is show number 11, hard to believe, and uh, we're coming to you from the lovely state of Louisiana, the city of New Orleans, crime capital of the United States, and with me as always is Uber Bill and Wise Girl. Good to be here. And uh, here we are. This show is about bogosity. <laughs> what is bogosity? Well, uh, it's a show that is produced by a guy by the name of Shane Killian that we're going to be interviewing. It's a really cool little viral video series that's floating around on the net that we discovered. And uh, it's very similar to like BS Alert and Theme. You know, he picks topics and he kind of tries to expose the, the fallacies in them. And I'm a big fan of his work, so I thought we'd get him on the show and we'd talk about all kinds of stuff. Plus, he's a, he's got some things he wants to talk with us about based on some of our previous shows. So uh, it should be a good conversation. So we're looking forward to it. Plus, it's our first show about a show. A show about a show, <laughs> yes. Here's a little promo for his show. It's called Bogosity. In a world of lies, myths, frauds, and sloppy thinking, there is one man who stands for truth, who stands as a candle in the dark, one lone voice in the wilderness, one man who will save us all. Promos are bogosity. They never tell you anything you want to know about the show. They just show you the exciting parts. Prepare for some rapid-fire bogosity. Or the funny parts. Your brains have fallen out! Stupid! And, of course, the explosion. Bogosity is a show about all things bogus. I'm James Young, and I am an astrologer. Illicit drugs are not dangerous because they're illegal. They're illegal because they're dangerous. Bogus! On Bogosity, we're going to debunk everything we can that's bogus and hopefully make the world smarter, more skeptical, and less prone to fraud. It is Bible-believing creationists who gave us science as we know it today. Their God is too small. And it's all coming up on Bogosity. And that's the show. And we'll, we'll play a few little clips, and we're also going to get Shane on the line, and um, we're going to chat with him about bogosity. Yes, hopefully he won't debunk us. I don't think I can take it. <laughs> that's right. We don't exist. We're just a figment of people's Shane. imaginations. He's done a, a number of shows on a whole bunch of different topics, everything from astrology to creationism, a lot like Penn and Teller's, you know, their bullshit. I mean, we're all kind of in that same vein. We all kind of pick things and we kind of just pile on them. Yeah. <laughs> we pile on them because they're stupid. Right. <laughs> well, welcome welcome to our show. We're fans of, of your series. How many episodes do you have out now? Right now there are nine episodes online. And uh, they cover everything from evolution to the war on drugs to polls and... Uh, the Bible Code. One of my favorite shows is uh, your your expose on the law of attraction. <laughs> yeah. What uh, is there any is there any methodology behind what topics you pick uh, when you decide to? Well, do it, it, it mostly depends on what video sources I can find. Because <clears throat> people are always asking me, "Could I do a show on this? Could I do a show on that?" It's like, find me videos I can use, and it works best when I have. Uh, mix of videos on both the, the 
the pro side and the skeptic side. And, I mean, you mentioned the, the law of attraction. Uh, that one is not one of my favorites because I couldn't really get much on the, the professional side with that one. I kind of had to do it all myself. Uh, it would have been nice if I could have found, for example, a video explaining the placebo effect so I wouldn't have to do it myself. But, oh, right. You know, well, I'd I liked, rather have had that. But. I liked how you created the same look and feel as the original series with the little little things behind you. Uh what technology are you using to, to uh, produce these and edit them? Uh, I edit with uh, Sony Vegas. And uh, it's just your, your basic green screen. It's a, a green bed sheet, really. And I have a uh, Sony high-definition camcorder. Um, it's not a professional. I guess they might call it ProZoomer. <laughs> it's a little... A little uh, a little bit of a higher end model, I think, than most consumer level cam, but it's it's still a camcorder. It's, it doesn't have the professional features or anything. What show is your favorite that you've done so far? Uh, hard to say because I can't really think of them objectively. I I'm really partial to the Paradalia episode just because it was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun just one. Seeing all all the different faces and everything, and then trying the different things and playing the theme music backwards at the end and hiding subliminal messages. I had a lot of fun doing that. <laughs> yeah, we've run plenty of stories about uh, images, religious icons and images being found in places. Do you get equal mixes of positive and negative, or do you get do you get any negative? Like, do you get hate mail? It's real, I get negative. It, it's really hard to say. The, um, the creationists and the moon hoaxers are the most venomous. Ah, yes. There's not, no doubt about that. Um, I think the moon hoaxers probably edge out the creationists there because they, they are really just, <laughs> Gung -ho. they are really intense. This is the idea um, that the, the, the lunar landing was completely faked, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, we never meant, went to the moon and all the videos were made on a soundstage or whatever. What's their rationale for, for, the, for the whole fakery in the first place? I think it's just the fact that they, they can't believe that people could achieve something so awesome. I think there's some, there's some misanthropy there and maybe a little bit of uh, self-esteem issues because, you know, they know that they could never achieve anything like that. And <laughs> I'm not saying that to be mean because I know I could never achieve anything like that, but I can still look at what all of these brilliant people did and just marvel at it. And for some reason, I think they have something in their psychology that they just have to deny it. So they're not suggesting that, for example, it was some kind of a financial boondoggle as much as it was some kind of a PR campaign? Um, I, I don't really know. I think they seem to be saying that it's both because they did take, you know, billions of dollars to do that. And, you know, a lot of them do the, the follow-the-money stuff. Uh, but, yeah, there's the, there's the, the PR angle, and I, I'm not really sure where they're coming from because if you're – if you're going to do something that's a big boondoggle and you're going to do something that's a big PR thing, there's got to be a much easier way to do it than trying to make all of these videos, you know, faking one-sixth gravity in a vacuum and so forth with 1960s technology. Right. <laughs> do, you, do you engage, you know, any of your, the negative, the naysayers, uh, or do you, I mean, do you just kind of let that roll off here, or do you, do you get in there and, and fire back? Uh, most of the time, I fire back. Um, excuse me. I got sinus issues today, so I'm going to be coughing and snorting <laughs> a lot, and I apologize for that. <laughs> no worries. But, yeah, I got no qualms about going in there and engaging them one-on-one. -on -one. 
uh, you can look through the comments in the the YouTube um, in the YouTube episodes. You can look through the comments and see all of the vitriol that goes through there. And sure, I, I have no problem getting in people's faces about it when I think they're just being stupid. So the so the post show interaction is often primarily centered around the the comments in YouTube and some of these other forums where you have the videos posted. Yeah, there is a forum that I've set up at Bogosity.tv. I only set that up uh, a few weeks ago. And so it's just starting to get a trickle of people in there, but hopefully that will start building up and there will be more of a community there because in YouTube, with their comments, it's kind of hard to tell who has replied to which post and you're limited to 500 characters. And with a proper online forum, you can get so much more in-depth and have a good conversation going. Well, um, let me play a little clip from one of your shows just to give okay. people who, who are not familiar with it a little taste of it. Um, this was uh, episode two. It's just another desperate ploy by the lying criminal Kent Hoven and his lying criminal associates. We're just not dealing with honest people here. Even other creationists such as Ken Ham have called his claims fraudulent. How bogus do you have to be when other creationists are calling you out on it? The video goes on to make a lot of other claims. Evolution doesn't even qualify to be a theory, despite the fact that it's the term most commonly used for it. No, in reality, it's not a theory at all. It's a model. Hello? That's what a theory is. A theory <laughs> is a model. There's a theory of gravity, which is a model explaining how gravity works. There's a theory of our solar system, which describes how our planets and other bodies move around it. So, creationist coffee lady, how is it not a theory? Scientific theories have to be observed, tested, and results repeated. But evolution has never been observed. No one was there when life first appeared on this planet. You know, being a bogus doctor has its advantages, like having the experience to use equipment like this state-of-the-art bogometer to measure levels of bogosity. I want one of those This video, for example, emits levels of bogosity equivalent to that produced by Congress in a period of three days. That's a lot of bogosity. Even that last clip had unusually high bogosity levels. Why? Because evolution doesn't have anything at all to do with how life first appeared. I want to bring this up because I often find that th this, this argument is almost not even worth elevating. You know what I mean? I mean? Dawkins said that there's certain arguments that you shouldn't even try to counter because what you're essentially doing is legitimizing this ridiculously outlandish claim. Do you do you I know this is so it's so easy to criticize the creationists, but do, do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, um, I think I can I think I can get away with playing by different rules because I'm not a scientist. Um, in fact, the clip uh, that you just played was a um, uh, perfect example of uh, what I'm trying to do with the series, and that is get in people's faces about it. You know, a scientist, you know, he has a reputation to consider, he has a public face to consider, you know, he has to <clears throat> he has to be at least somewhat polite about it and talk around different things and say, yes, well, the evidence seems to suggest and that sort of thing, and uh, I don't have any obligations like that. I don't have any sort of scientific reputation to keep up, so I can just get in your face and say, you idiot, you're wrong. But, but, but you... Yeah, there is there is this idea. That was actually what I mentioned earlier about episode six, about not having any um, uh, any experts helping me out with that. 
I tried to get a couple of people to submit some videos about the placebo effect and about quantum mechanics, and they were interested until I told them what the episode was about, and then they refused for that very reason. They didn't want people to think that the law of attraction was at such a level that it needed an expert to be able to debunk it. Right. That's kind of the the thing that I'm thinking is that, like, in the clip that we just played, the the fundamental flaw is that these creationists are confusing evolution by natural selection with theories relating to the origin and initial development and creation of life, which are, as you say, two completely different concepts. And they're intermingling them for the purpose of trying to kind of mislead people into suggesting that there are no answers for some of these things. And I, I've gotten to a point now, because I've debated with these people and talked ad nauseum, where I think that it's no longer a case of them being ignorant and, you know, we need to point it out. They know. I mean, Kent Hovind yeah. has been told about natural selection over and over and over and over again. So the idea that he's just pretending he's not aware of natural selection when he suggests that there's no precedent and there's no reason why life changes or anything like that, or, you know, when he says evolution happens by chance, which, of course, we know right. that's, that's bogus. And I see almost like we're being trolled. The people in the kind of the free-thinking, rational community are actually being trolled by these people. And they figure if they can get us to engage them, then that gives them some kind of respectability because they can claim, well, you know what? If it was that ridiculous, they wouldn't even be arguing with us. Well, but then what are you, you going to seed the ground to them? Just keep backing up and, uh, and, and let them take pot Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing. So many people hear just these creationist arguments and they, they hardly ever get to hear the science side. I mean, if you talk to any biology professor, they'll tell you that most of their students come in with completely wrong ideas about evolution, and they have to spend a lot of the first two semesters just correcting all the misinformation that's in their heads. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. I just, I just think it's sad. I think it's almost like a, a kind of an, an ideological tar pit that great minds are getting stuck in instead of addressing more substantive issues like we may very well have more actual evidence substantiating some ideas about life coming from non-life, which is something that they claim is impossible or has never been proven. But anyway, of all the shows, I kind of, you know, I could see where you had the same situation where the secret you didn't want some people even being associated with it. Um, so, but generally speaking, you don't really have that problem when you try to get evidence and people to cooperate. Uh, no, in fact, um, a lot of people are uh, very forthcoming. The whole reason Episode 5 exists, the Bible Code, is because of Lee Graham. He had seen the the show online, and he had uh, talked with me back and forth a little bit on the, uh, the James Randi BBS. <clears throat> and he had sent me a PM and said, hey, you know, I do this thing, uh, the Origin Codes. How would you like to see an episode on the Bible Codes? And I had heard of them. I was kind of familiar with them, and it was one of those things I went like, yeah, right, and kind of dismissed. And so I didn't really know a whole lot about them just to be able to do the debunking. And so he and I emailed back and forth, and he produced his video segments for me and sent them on to me. And He was cool with your the end result, or did he was he not happy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he very much liked it. So even though you debunked his claim, he appreciated it? No, 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 no. He was... He, he was. Oh, he was a skeptic. He he was debunking the Bible codes by doing the same thing with the origin of species. I got gotcha. you. 
So you didn't have somebody who was in was a, a Bible code advocate and represented. No, on the show. no, no, no. So, uh, do you have what ideas do you have for future shows? Well, there's uh, quite a few, and it, it's really hard to say what's in what stage right now. Um, I think probably in the next batch, I'm going to do an episode about uh, the people who say that Charles Darwin led to Adolf Hitler and all these other things, how Darwinism is immoral. And I've got a, a couple of videos on that. I've, I've got a copy of Expelled. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yes. And there's this other video produced by Coral Ridge Ministries that just blasts around. And, of course, it's all based on complete misunderstandings of Darwinism and and what Darwin was really saying. Mm -hmm. That'll probably be one. Uh, Global warming, I think I'm pretty close to doing an episode on that. And it's funny because there I'm getting things from from both sides, the the people who are on the uh, uh, more of the the global warming activists, the environmental side, want me to debunk the deniers. And the deniers want me to debunk the other guys and I don't know if I'm going to give both sides what they want or I'm going to completely trash both sides, but it'll be interesting because there's a lot of legacity on both sides of that issue. And the real science, I think, is so much more fascinating so about what what's is happening it, with global warming. What is your process? Obviously, you're not necessarily picking subjects that you are an expert in, but I guess in the process of doing the show, you just dive in and try to absorb as much material and become an expert? Yeah, and it's like I'll see a video on something and think that might uh, be an interesting thing for an episode. And I have a directory on my hard drive, a Bogosity directory. I'll make a subdirectory under that with the subject and put videos in there and other uh, sources, links to sources uh, doing research. And at some point, I'll get enough that I probably have enough to work with. And, of course, just as I go about doing what I do throughout the day, there'll be times, you know, when I go back and I think on these things, and at some point, what I want to say with the episode will kind of gel in my head, and that's the point where I know I can actually sit down and start working on a script for it, and actually start making it into an episode. Well, that's very cool. I I thought the the Law of Attraction one, it just, the whole premise of the Law of Attraction is just so ludicrous that it just lends itself towards being amusing. Well, I I think the Law of Attraction... Works because, like I said in the episode, it is based on something we all know. If you have a positive attitude towards things, it really does help you out. Yeah. Uh, and it can be very beneficial. But it's because the positive attitude allows you to do more, allows you to take a more active role, and not just sit there attracting things. Right, but obviously they take it to extremes in suggesting you have Right, power. They, they actually have it being uh, a causal agent. And I know I have friends who literally believe this is true, uh, and I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see. It. You know, the, I mean, I, I guess I can understand that des- human desire is a very powerful force. Yeah. And uh, recently, you had a show on election polls, which I thought was really interesting, where you expose that the methodology behind a lot of these polls are outright false. And you show a clip, I guess it's from CNN or something, where they talk about how 
the election results came back and and it was like three or four different polls and it was different from all the polls and they had some pundit on talking about what would cause it to be different and he cited every possible reason except that the polls might have been flawed that was like not even something that they were going to consider <laughs> right yeah it, it, it's like they have they they have so much uh in stock with their polls and they have so much they depend on polls for and they want to be able to say yes we did this poll and that means that people believe this and they want to believe it themselves and that's why i didn't really take the same attack on the news media with that episode is like what we just heard with the creationists because unlike the, the creationists like i mean I, I don't mean the rank and file creationists i mean the ones like ken hoven like we said we know he's lying I don't think that's the case with the news media people. I think they actually believe that they're getting good data with these polls, and they're just trying to make everything else fit it. But but you still run into these problems because all of these things are after-the-fact explanations, and the the thing that's actually kind of ubiquitous in polls that I talked about was this idea that people will tell a pollster they'll vote for a black candidate, and then they don't. Right. And they, they've made this claim for years and it's like well if they know that then why don't they account for it if they know there's this bias there study the bias study how much it is and account for it and then you'll come to the right thing but they don't do that it's an after the fact explanation and you 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 played a clip i guess that you got off of the net from somebody who recorded a telephone poll that came to them where it was an automated poll where they were to enter in, you know, a number based on what candidate they wanted. And if, like, other was six, and when they hit six, it hung up on them or removed them right, from the Right, because seven, six was other candidate, and seven was never call me again. And he, he hit six, and the machine that was conducting the poll misread it as a seven and, and took him off. Now, are you suggesting that that might have been intentional? What's that? Are you suggesting that might have been intentional? I don't think there's any reason uh, to conclude that, although a lot of people online who heard that clip uh, have said, see, they don't want people to know. But no, I think it's probably just a, you know, glitches happen, bugs happen. You know, those those systems are far from perfect. But it to me, it's the fact that they don't. That has been a thousand people who did that. Well, maybe not a thousand. They probably didn't poll a thousand people, but you know, there could have been a lot of people in that same situation who hit one thing and misread it as something else, and there was no way for them to correct it, no way for them to call, you know, a customer service whoever and said, "Hey, this thing went wrong," and just just no way to correct for for when they mess up. Because right. the technology, it's going to mess up. But you, but you also allude to the fact that by the way they frame the polling questions, they actually can squeeze out or influence results in a certain way. Now that oh yeah, that, that's widely that's widely known, and that's relatively premeditated, wouldn't you say? It could be, but it might not be conscious. Because if someone has a bias and they're writing a question that bias may seep into the question without them realizing, and they may think that they're making an objective question when the bias they have has come in. Right. I mean, you, I think you, you, you described it in a very interesting way by, by using some examples where if you ask somebody, would you vote for an atheist, 
where whether and and maybe if they said something like as an alternative would you vote for somebody who believed differently than you did regarding religion you know um you get two completely different answers right because there's preconceived notions about these certain labels and you suggested people don't like to be labeled and they deliberately would rebel like the newsweek poll where six percent said they didn't believe in god but only three percent said they were atheists right same poll same people they just they just they didn't want the label Mm -hmm. tell us about what your take is on astrology because you did a show on that and did you catch a lot of flack from uh, you know new agers and people like that that didn't like what your conclusion? Not as much as I did from the uh, the creationists and the moon hoaxers. They're always out there up top. Um, pretty much everyone I caught flack from, I think, ended up being an astrologer. Have you seen Dawkins' series, Enemies of Reason? Yes, I have. And yeah, he's got a segment where he actually interviews people and runs through different horoscopes. And- <laughs> randomly picks a horoscope and then reads it to somebody and they oh yes oh yeah like someone has a capricorn and they're reading a horoscope for cancer right those are those are fun little you know kind of games you can play to kind of laugh at astrology but as far as just a scientific debunking of it i don't think anything can beat the time twin study that i finished off of if any kind of astrology that worked in any way was going to work you would see these similarities with time twins and you don't yeah to me the logical argument is I guess astrology is based on primarily when you were born. So it suggests that everybody that's born at the same time and or the same location has exactly the same destiny. Right, yeah. They they would have the same planets in the same position in the sky, all in conjunction or opposition or whatever with each other at the moment when they were born. And, you know, astrologers say, you know, give me your birth information as closely as you know it, and they'll say, well, you know, I was born in, you know, this city, which, you know, covers miles and miles and miles, and they might say I was born at 8 o'clock when it might have been, you know, 7.50 or 8.06 or whatever, and they might say I was born at 8 o'clock. And this study actually was able to group, in some cases, group people by the minute, people who were born within the same 60-second interval, because they had all the birth records of all of these I forget how many, it was like 3,000 people or something. It was, it was a lot. And they were all born within five minutes of each other. And like I said, some of them, they were able to go down to the minutes and just no correlation at all with any of the things that... And one of the authors of the study, the main author actually, Jeffrey Dean, is a former astrologer. So, you know, that's another thing they say, well, these people have never studied astrology. They don't know. Well, he's a former astrologer, so he knows. So another thing that you mentioned is you know that we've done a couple of shows in the past where we've kind of picked on certain issues, and one of them has been libertarianism. And I yeah. understand that you're, you know, you're a bit of a fan of that. You've, you've heard, I, I guess, maybe our interview with Scott Horton where he was promoting the anarcho-capitalist flavor of yeah, it. Yeah, that, that's kind of the anarchist wing. Um, and I... Now you're, you say libertarianism you're a, a mini-archist, right? not anarchist. It's small government, not no government. Well, maybe you can qualify that for us, because we're, we're still just confused as to how minimal um, people really mean when they say they want a minimal government. Well, the basis of libertarianism is the non-initiation of force principle. So, you know, you don't get to 
point a gun at me and kill me because that's initiating force, but I can point a gun to kill you to stop you from killing me because I'm not initiating it, I'm responding to it. And we consider fraud to be a form of force as well. And it's all about if no one initiates force or fraud, then everyone can live freely. And since that's not very likely to happen, then we need to be able to provide for the defense against the initiation of force. And one of the ways to do that is government. And as long as the government stays in its role of protecting our rights, uh, pretty much what the Declaration of Independence says, securing the uh, inalienable human rights, protecting us from the initiation of force, then that's the kind of government we need. That's the kind of government we want. It's when government goes beyond that and starts initiating force on its own that it gets beyond what libertarians say it should be doing. Okay, I'm looking at the definition on Wikipedia, and it says um, minarchism is a limited government libertarianism and the belief that the only role of government is to protect individuals from aggression. Um, minarchists believe that a state is necessary but should be minimal enough to protect the liberty and property of each individual. They generally believe in a night watchman state limited to courts, police, defense, prison, and taxes. Would you say that's what you're talking about? That's fair, yeah. What is, what is, what is a night watchman state? I, well, I didn't write that, so okay. I, don't know, I don't know where they're going with that. Uh, I would guess it's just the, the idea that government does what a night watchman does. It keeps a lookout, and if anyone initiates force, it can step in and stop it from happening and... If that doesn't happen, then he's just sitting around twiddling his thumbs. That's not really anything for him to do. So I guess the main enforcement wing would be the court system is what you're suggesting. Well, I mean, you'd need, you'd need some sort of uh, police system, some sort of constabulary to be able to actually go and make arrests and take it into the courts. Well, can you give me an example of how you would make our present government minarchist? What would you get rid of? Personally, I would get rid of everything that's not authorized by the Constitution. <clears throat> and I'm not saying that if we did that, we would end up with an ideal libertarian government. But man, it would be a lot closer than it is now. So no Department of Education, no FDA, no EPA, no Department of Transportation? Well, we might have the Department of Transportation because roads is actually in the Constitution. But all of the rest of the stuff are state issues, not federal. Hmm. And you don't, because we, we, you know, we, we address this issue, and, and my thinking is uh, the argument that a lot of libertarians make is that government is irresponsible and corrupt, and therefore it's best to limit the government's power and influence. The problem I have and I'm not necessarily for big government or anything. I'm just taking a realistic approach to the situation. I see just as much corruption in private enterprise, too. I don't see how lack of regulation would improve that. And I don't believe in the, quote, invisible hand of the market. I certainly would love to see government be smaller. But when people say, get rid of this, get rid of that, I think they underestimate the degree to which they depend on these institutions. Do you think, for example, without any government regulation of pollution, 
that this would not, that, you know, that wouldn't be something that would be a problem? Okay, yeah, you've given me a lot to respond to here. Um, I'll, I'll handle the pollution thing in a second, but I want to talk more generally about what you said. I think you have to look in the proper context of what's going on with these different things. We go against government <clears throat> because government essentially has a monopoly on aggression. You know, government can come in with the uh, the cops and do whatever. I showed a couple examples of these in the in uh, episode four, uh, especially the cops who went into that high school and they were pointing guns at the kids and things like that. It's out of control, and there's very little accountability. These things happen all the time, and hardly anyone pays the price for them. And and that's the big problem. It's the age-old question, who watches the watchman? Right. Now, you mentioned the same thing happening in uh, the private sector. And, of course, as libertarians, we believe any kind of aggression, any initiate force is wrong. And if someone were to do that, then that would be a place where the government could absolutely step in and do that. But there's a couple of things that this goes awry. First of all, I think if you actually look at it, most of the cases where you have some sort of corporate corruption or something like that that actually results in tangible harm uh, against people, I think you'll find that there was some sort of corporatism going on there, some sort of deal they had with the government, something they were doing to either keep down competition or whatever, because without that, there wouldn't be anything to stop a competitor from coming in and doing it. The other thing would be if they just got more like the mafia and went around, started collecting protection money and breaking you know, windows or whatever if people didn't pay. And that, that of course, is something that the government that would have the authority to step in and prevent and defend against, but really you only see that with the uh, with the, the criminal elements, with things that are illegal like drugs and prostitution. And if we had a libertarian society where those things were legal, uh, we wouldn't have that. Now you mentioned the pollution issue, and that's a very interesting issue because it's it's easy if someone comes and steals your money, you take that person and say, this person stole my money, and then, you know, they can pay restitution, they can spend, you know, so long in jail. <clears throat> but what do you do with pollution? Well, one of the things that I think is very interesting is that in the U.K., or at least in parts of the U.K., I don't really know a whole lot about this, so I've just read about it, uh, The a lot of the waterways are privately owned. So, like, if you live on a river you own the part of your river that goes by your house or your property. And there's an organization called the Anglers Conservation Association. I think that's what it's called. And what they do is they're a nonprofit organization. When a company pollutes a river, they take, on behalf of all the property owners there, they take action against the company and they... They have their lawyers that they send in, and they get the uh, restitution, the, the the money from the lawsuit against them, and then all of these different residents get, like, their portion of it. And it seems to work very well. And we don't really have that option over here because, for the most part, you know, most of the waterways and so forth are 
they say publicly owned, but it really means owned by the government. And so what you end up with are you know, forests being clear-cut by paper companies. You know, they just chop down all the trees. Why do they care? It's not their property. And the only person who has the control over it is some bureaucrat who doesn't care either. Whereas if you look at the private forest, the forest privately owned by these very same paper companies and logging companies, they're taking care of very well. In a lot of cases, they're taking better care of than our national forests. So it's really about the private interest giving people incentive to do that. That incentive just isn't there with government. Well, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that. I'd like to see some wise girl. You got any comments on this? Well, I guess I'm wondering. It doesn't seem like uh, that would work very well as a preventive measure. It's a way you could sue after the damage has already been done. To uh, well, no, because it's it's a deterrent as well. If they know that there's a chance that if they pollute a river, that they'll come in and they'll have to pay out uh, a lot of this money. You know, that's a disincentive. It's And they wouldn't do it for the same reason they don't pollute their own property. They don't want to take the hit of losing their own property's value because that, that affects the asset side, that, that affects the bottom line. Well, you're assuming... So you're the assuming. idea is to take that same incentive and, in a sense, transfer it. If you damage someone else's property, then you have to pay that person for the damage. They're going to want to avoid that for the same reason they don't pollute their own land. But in many cases, it's sort of worth it to them. I mean, if if what they can make in in the course of polluting is worth more to them than what they would have to pay out, uh, then it essentially becomes a, a cost-benefit analysis. And yeah, there's certainly been examples of that. But also, more importantly, there's this idea that this this theory is based on the premise that, that uh, all parties in this conflict would have equal representation and appropriate fairness in the in the court system and i think we see that in our society now if you don't have enough money or enough resources you often can't legally defend yourself even if the law is on your side and i'm, I'm well, like i said you know in in england they have they have a nonprofit organization association right. that, that does this i think you'd see all sorts of things bringing up if that was what uh, people had to do, um, and I think you would, you would see these things all over the place, and I, I don't know what the best way is to keep our air and our water from being polluted. All I know is what the government is doing, I'm not impressed with. I, and I, don't th- I think we agree with you there. I just don't know if getting government completely out would necessarily solve the problem. I find that whoever has the money and has the power and the influence. If you've got these public advocate groups that are nonprofits, they're going to still be beholden to somebody for their funding. And if they're getting funding from the very companies that they might end up fighting, there could be a serious conflict of interest. And we've seen that happen, especially like if you look uh, online, uh, you have the organizations that are responsible for certifying websites and domains as being safe. Well, they're paid. You pay them. If you don't pay them, they won't certify you as being safe. So there's an inherent conflict of interest there where they're getting paid from the very same people they're supposed to be regulating. Or uh, That's true, but that harms the reputation of the people who do it. And it, to give you a counterexample, probably the best counterexample there is, Google. 
you can pay Google and, you know, get, get your ads up on Google and do all the thing and give Google all this money, and it won't in any way affect your ranking in the regular search results. Right, and but Google makes sure not only that they, that they do this, they make sure that doesn't happen, they make sure everyone knows it because they want the reputation of having their search results of people being confident in their search results as being kind of website they would want to go to. Well, I'd be skeptical that that's going to be like that forever, that that's absolutely a definite thing. I mean, I think uh, like eBay is... Well, I mean, it might not be there forever with Google, but if if Google starts sliding on that, then Ask.com is going to come in and start saying, hey, you know, Google's taking money to put the results up. We don't do that. Come to our search engine. And that's competition. Well, that, not, not a bad point. I guess we'll just have to see. But you do. But this is a good segue into another argument, which is the whole idea of the nature of the Internet in the first place. You know, you, obviously you're for a very minimalist government. So what about the situation with the Internet? The Internet was created by a government-subsidized program, certainly not an essential system. So under a minarchist well, government, the Internet would have never existed, and we have plenty of historical evidence of corporate-controlled technology that would never have been widely as pervasive as the Internet because it, you know, the corporations would want to insist on having control. Look at the SMS system with uh, the cell service. We're paying by the character or by the minute. Um, the, the rate that we're paying for transferring information from cell phones is exponentially higher than what we would pay for broadband access because the broadband access was subsidized by the government. So what would happen, you know, this is one of the things that I find ironic is there's so many libertarians that are on the Internet harping about minimalist government, but they're using a forum that would not have existed if the government wasn't a little bit more liberal about trying, you know, to subsidize innovation and non-essential Well, you make things. a good point, but I also think it's a fallacy to say that just because this happened with governments, that it could only have happened with governments. There were other networks. There were other protocols. There were other things that people could have used to connect if they had wanted to. Often that got used because, of course, it was made for the military, and then they expanded that a lot. These universities started coming onto it, and it just kind of grew from there. So it was really the... The, the infrastructure that was in place that everyone just kind of built on. But, I mean, there was no reason why it couldn't have been built on one of the many protocols that were independently based. But it wouldn't, you know, have, been, it wouldn't have been because the corporations would not have as freely licensed their technology to so many people. Why wouldn't they have? Because IBM freely licensed its uh, PCXP technology when that came out and launched the PC revolution. I know, but I mean, it wouldn't have been, it would have cost something, you know. I mean, I know there's, there, was, there was hundreds of different networks. Uh, Control Data had a, had a worldwide computer network called Plato that was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people, the Apple people wanted to be able to make their technology connect to Control Data's network. And... For one reason or another, control data never never cooperated and never gave them the ability to link in all the microcomputer owners into their network. And I don't think it was a case of it not being capable. There were people that said it could have been done. And there's a, yeah. I think there's lots of examples of this. 
I'm not saying well, yeah, that it's I've not been, impo- it's not, not possible. 90, 99% of the time with with the corporations like that you're going to get the the monkey with the fistful of rice who can't pull his fist out of the tree but won't let go of the rice either. <clears throat> but it's that 1% that can really uh drive things forward. And I think we we've been seeing a lot of that with the um with the music industry. I mean, look at how much the music industry, which is really a cartel, the RIAA, mm-hmm. and, you know, they and the NDAA lobbied the Congress to get the Digital Millennium Copyright Act passed and go after people who illegally download music and movies. But the fact is, people wanted to get it that way. It wasn't so much they were saying, oh, ha-ha, I'm getting it for free. It was a quick, easy, convenient way of doing it. You know, They didn't have to spend what pretty much everyone considered to be an overpriced, CD, you know, just for two songs that they wanted. They wanted to be able to get it a la carte. Uh, they wanted to be able to get it conveniently. And look what we have now. You can go to Amazon.com and do exactly that for, I think, you know, 98 cents a song or something like that. It's MP3. It doesn't even have any digital rights management. And you can play it on any device you want. Uh, you can go to Netflix.com, of course, that you can send you the CDs. But they have a lot of stuff on their website that you can just watch, and we're seeing a lot more of that. And I think if it hadn't been the case where they were able to form this, what's essentially a government-supported cartel, I think you would have seen this probably 10 years ago. Because maybe not with movies, but with music, we certainly have the technology to do this 10 years ago. And it's like just now they're they're finally catching up with that. So you're saying that it, it it was the industry's desire to embrace technology and to try some different business models. They weren't coerced at all. Because I'm well, the the coercion. I mean, the, what came the, the what came first? Went, iTunes went, went the or other way. The coercion was by the people who wanted to maintain the status quo. You know, the the big record labels who wanted to be able to keep selling fifteen dollars CDs with eight songs, six of which weren't worth a crap. Right. You know, that was what. They wanted to be able to maintain that profit model. And I would contend they, they'd prefer to maintain it even now. And I think that the only reason why they, they are not doing that is because they have to in order to compete with the, the open market where people are trading this stuff. You know. Exactly, yeah. But I wouldn't say that, but I would say it was, it's this open black market that forced them to change. And, well, yeah. the, the black market was, so, you know, for I assume you're meaning like the illegal downloads and everything. Well, what came first, Napster or iTunes? You know, well, Napster came first, but only because iTunes doesn't exist. Right, but but Napster came out, and people started trading music like crazy, and yeah. obviously they had to create some kind of a commercial application because the technology was there. I I would argue that that the the industry probably never ever wanted to sell their product digitally if they didn't have to, but they had to because there was no way they could stop or control what was going on online. You're right, suggesting well, that, that, was that, the, that was where the consumer demand was going. If they either, they basically have three choices. They can respond to consumer demand, they can go out of business, or they can go have the government bail them out. Well, <laughs> That's let me really give, the only three things they can do. Let me give you an example of where 
this consumer demand, in my experience, doesn't is not doesn't exist. Which uh, look at look at cable and satellite TV. Okay, most yeah. people that that have cable and satellite TV, you know, they 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 may watch five, ten, fifteen channels, but you cannot get channels a la carte. The same thing with XM right. or Sirius Radio. You can't just get Howard Stern or Opie and Anthony. You have to buy the and, package. So, and the, that is largely because of a big lobbying group, the National Association of Broadcasters, which is a big group consisting of a lot of the channel owners as well as a lot of the big cable. And if you talk to Charlie Irvin, the CEO of Dish Network, he would love to be able to sell you the channels a la carte. But he's legally not allowed to do that. So you're saying that legally DirecTV can't sell the channels individually? There's a there's a law or something? Well, I, I don't know if it's... If it, I don't know all the legalities around this, but there, there's some... It, it's like there's two different sets of rules for cable and for satellite because cable goes and they say, we'll take the channel and go, here, have the channels, and then Charlie Ergen every month does a live call-in show with uh, his customers. I'm a Dish Network customer, and that's how I know about it. And you know, he's constantly complaining about the fact that when they want to broadcast the channel, they say, well, you have to pay us for retransmission rights. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If you're showing their channel, you're showing commercials, you're making money. But, you know. <laughs> but it's, it, it's just what do. the National Association of Broadcasters is so entrenched. And if you want... A good example of how this works, I think this was, I think it wasn't quite 10 years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, something like that. Dish Network and DirecTV wanted to merge, and that way they could, have, they could be a larger satellite company, and then they could really compete with the big cable companies. Well, that, that would have given them, I think, 17% of the multi-channel market, and the FCC shut down the merger. A few months later, there was this merger between Comcast and I forget who else where they would get over 30% of the market, Time and they let that go through. So you tell me what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I have serious issues with all of this media consolidation. I think that's part of the, one of the big problems. If there is any evidence that indicates that there's that level of restrictions on, the, on these companies, that they can't sell channels a la carte, I'd like to find that out. You know, I, I wouldn't put it past them just because... I think there is a, a a real problem in many areas of government that the government has been co-opted by large businesses. Yeah, uh, but I'm, I'm just, just not sure that the, like the solution is to get rid of the I think, government. I think that's that's pretty much inevitable when you have a government that essentially has free reign to do anything. When the government can tax as much as it wants, when a government can create money out of thin air and you know bail out whatever industries. <clears throat> That this, it wants when you essentially have a government that can pass whatever law it wants and they don't have to worry about it passing constitutional muster. Of course you're going to have that. I mean, think about it. How often do you write your congressman? I might write him a few times a week, and I'm probably one of the more active with that. But even me writing you know, three or four times a week, they've got lobbyists just in the hall. Every time they step out of... Every time they step out in the hallway, there are all sorts of lobbyists who come up to them talking about this and talking about that, and that magnifies their voice 
far, far beyond the voice that you and I have. And I don't really see any way of undoing that or stopping that without just completely, you know, blowing away everyone's free speech rights other than just making the government follow the Constitution and just do the things that it's supposed to do and not even letting it have the power to get into these other areas where it can be corrupted by the corporations. Right, but I don't see how less regulation of corporations is going to ultimately benefit the consumer. I see plenty of examples every day of things that consumers want that corporations deny them. And this argument that, well, if it was really in that much a demand, uh, then there would be more competition and some other company would pop up. And I think that's not necessarily true because in today's marketplace where we've got these corporations that are consolidating, they're so huge they really can – you know, there's not really any competition, and some of the industries yeah, that, that, that they're, they're in, there you can't, you cannot, you know, in the 1996 when they passed the Telco Act, they said this is going to result in uh, cheaper cable TV. Let's deregulate the industry a little bit and let these companies consolidate, but we're also going to open up the market to others. And what ended up happening was the companies consolidated, but the other half of the thing, opening the market, allowing more competition. Sure, there was a, there was companies that, that there was a lot of little long distance companies that popped up for a short period of time, and then were muscled out of the marketplace by the bigger companies. I have I have friends of mine that run a CLEC, and they've got a, uh, you know they they're trying to do their own phone service, but they're at the mercy of AT and T, which controls some of the network points and does all kinds of weird underhanded things to mess with their ability to get their product to market. And they can't, there's not really any recourse. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to set, to nail them on this because they're all really kind of sneaky about it. And I think, I think this happens in a lot of different industries. I'm just not sure how that situation would get better if there was less regulation. Well, the, reason, the reason why that situation is happening is because of corporatism. There isn't all that much we have in this country that really resembles much of a free market. And the corporatism is really what's there to actually keep the competition at bay so that the big corporations you know, pay for everybody's campaign coffers so that they can keep going and so that people who do them favors in Congress can keep getting reelected and it's just this vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. So you have things like they go through and they they have all of these regulations and they say, we need to get it marked for reasons like what you said. But every regulation imposes a cost on the corporations. They actually have to pay to comply. Even if they don't have to pay anything directly to the government, they have to pay to make sure they're in compliance to pay for you know, doing all the paperwork and making sure everything's like it's supposed to be, that incurs an extra cost. The big corporations are a lot, it's a lot easier for them to absorb that cost than it is for the little guy. Right. And so what that does is that puts a big burden. And if you look at, for example, look at the Clean Air Act, there were a lot of big corporations that lobbied for the Clean Air Act. Right. They inserted so they lots of little forth, special things. Hey, look at us. We care about the environment. Well, what were they What were they doing? They were like, well, you know, here's all these restrictions on the emissions from factories. But, oh, gee, you know what? It would be too much of an economic hardship to make everyone just 
all of a sudden redo all our factories so they put in a grandfather clause. And they didn't say, you know, you have five years or ten years or whatever. It's permanent. Any factory that was set up before the Clean Air Act passed could keep belching its crap into the atmosphere. Any small guy who wanted to expand or any new startup had the full brunt of the regulations that they had to comply with. Okay, so that's flawed. But how would, in a less regulatory government, that situation be solved or improved upon? Well, you know, you say less regulated, and you have to think, what regulations are you getting rid of and what regulations are you keeping? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you have a free market, then you won't have these barriers to entry, and someone can easily, or at least more easily, come up with a startup and say, hey, look, you know, we're starting up, and all of our factories are clean, and all, you know, all these things that we're doing, and we're doing it, better than the big corporations, and the big corporations have to compete with that. And if you look, you know, one, one of the, the things everyone talks about is Standard Oil and how Standard Oil just kind of dominated the marketplace uh, in the 19th century. But first of all, that wasn't exactly true. I mean, they had two-thirds of the market. They had the vast majority, but there, were still, there was still plenty of competition out there. But the way Rockefeller maintained his status in the market with Standard Oil was by keeping his prices down, by making heating oil affordable even to the poor. Uh, and so for the first time ever, they could afford heating oil, and they didn't have to deal with these dangerous coal furnaces. And every time Standard Oil kind of got too big for its bridges and started you know, damping up the price, boom, there'd be these other startups coming in, undercutting them, and they'd have to take their prices down again. Right. I just, um, I don't see a whole lot of these new startups coming in threatening some of these behemoth corporations. But Well, not now, because we've got all this corporatism. Mm-hmm. So are you against this notion of corporate personhood? Do you think corporations yeah. should, should not have... Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't really have much of a problem <clears throat> with things like limited liability. Because if you have some, if, if you have a company, everyone knows it's limited liability, you can choose whether or not you want to deal with them on that basis, and, uh, and you agree to that when you deal with them. But when you have uh, the, this whole idea of corporate personhood, where the corporation becomes an entity and the, a corporation can do something without any individual person doing it, I mean, you know, come on. Yes, there are people in there doing that. That's all a corporation is, is a collection of people. Right. I think we, I think we all agree that there's definitely something wrong when a corporation, a collection of people, can act immoral and unethical, uh, whereas if the individual people did it, they would get in trouble for it. Definitely a lot of food for thought. One of the things that I think we'd really like to see, we hear a lot of people talking about the, these theories, but I, I've never really seen a clear, concise plan, you know, somebody that said, here's how I envision the government being structured. Or or point to a particular time in history where there's a good working model. This is the thing we had issue we had with Scott Horton. We said, okay, uh, you think this is going to work? Can you point to some historical time? And he said, you know, ancient Iceland or something. And I don't know if that's practical. Do you have a, a good example of, of this type of society that's historically worked? Well, I think, I think the idea is so new 
I think our country was really the first to be founded on anything resembling these ideals, and we never really lived up to it. I mean, we had slavery from the get-go, and even after slavery was abolished, we started, uh, we, you know, there was the Holocaust of the Native American people, and there was the, the rise of corporatism and the rise of socialism happened right on the heels of all that. So, no, I don't think there is any one place where you can point and say, this is how they win. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we're trying to wrap up this show. So I want to say thanks for coming on and everything. And uh, Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, we look forward to chatting more. And um, I'll send you a little email with some of these links to these other things that I think you'll may be helpful for your shows. And we'll just keep in touch. And there we have it, another episode of BS Alert. Interview with Shane Killian from Bogosity.tv. If you haven't seen his little clips, and I know he's just starting to get kind of some attention out there online, but it's really cool. He's He produces some of the slickest little amateur videos that you'll see, and, and they're very funny, too. Um, definitely worth watching. Although I'm just... It always boggles me how there's so many of these skeptics that are super critical of everything except this notion of limited government. You know, I... What do you think? Um, I'm just sort of amazed that these people who distrust big government so much are so willing to trust everything else to state and local governments, which the closer I look at those, the less I want anything to do with them. Yeah, I think there's more corruption on a local level than there is on a national level. That's certainly been my experience. And, And I just, I don't know, I don't trust corporations to be able to fear the market. I don't see that. Of course, he argues that's because the nature of the corporations under this current system that if we change the system, the corporations would suddenly get more responsible. The problem is is that, is that that's all a neat idea, but when you say, show me an example of it, you know, you know there's not really any... Or you even ask a libertarian, give me a detailed plan exactly what the government would... You know, they say... Follow the Constitution, follow the Constitution. Well, it's not that simple. Not when you've got electricity and, you know, uh, roads and transportations and all these intertwining property rights. It just seems, I don't know. I'm just not as willing to jump on the bandwagon that if we neuter the government, the corporations are going to be super responsible. But your mileage may. We may get to see that after World War III, too. <laughs> when the, we have this little Mad Max, minarchist kind of thing happening, huh? I can't wait. Anyway, thanks for listening to the BS Alert podcast. Catch us online at bsalert.com. Always, the latest podcast will be at podcasts.bsalert.com. We've got forums. You can email us at bsastaff at bsalert.com. Thanks very much. And tell your friends. If you've got questions or comments or you want to come on the show, email us. Until next time, 